Hey everybody, welcome to the AC Podcast. This is Steve. I'm your host today because Troy had to bow out. He just needs to rest. Um, so if you remember to, please pray for him. He's a dearly beloved brother that we want back on the podcast as soon as possible. Hey, before we get started, uh, we have a couple of quick announcements. The first one is, as of the release of this episode, tonight on Friday, October 14th, we are going to have our launch event. Now, if you're not familiar with what launch is, we started doing this, I guess, was it last year or two years ago, where we gather our supporters and we look back, give thanks and look ahead. The whole AC team is going to be there in person and we're going to share with you what God has been doing over the last year of our ministry and show our appreciation to you, our supporters. And then we're going to share some vision of where AC is headed as an organization and share with you some some of the exciting projects that are coming down the pipe, new events and initiatives, so on and so forth. So there is still time for you to register if you haven't done that yet and you want to join us, go to apologeticscanada.com forward slash launch, and you can sign up there. You can be there in person at Northview Community Church in Abbotsford. But if you are outside of an easily drivable distance, there is also a live stream option. So you can join us either in person or online. And like I said, all of us are going to be there in person. So of course, Andy, Nancy, and Troy, but also me and Wesley, we're all going to be there in person. It'll be a great time of connecting. So we hope you can join us there. The second announcement is the Leadership Summit is coming up again in BC. We did our first ever Leadership Summit back in February and it was so successful that we decided to do it again on October 28th through 30th. The Leadership Summit is an initiative where we gather young professionals and students between the ages of 19 and 30 and we discuss what leadership should look like coming from Christians. And so we're going to talk about stuff like, okay, how do I lead through adversity? How do I live counterculturally by overcoming addiction to pop culture? What does humble leadership look like? So on and so forth. This is by application. And so you have to apply and you have to be approved. And if you want to join us, you can still go to our website and do that. There's still time. ApologiesCanada.com forward slash leadership dash summit dash BC. Again, ApologiesCanada.com forward slash leadership dash summit dash BC. And you can apply there. Now, if you notice that that link BC being in that link, it's because we have our first ever leadership summit coming up in Ontario this time. Next year, year 2023 on May 5th to 7th, hosted by our very own Wesley Huff, as well as Troy. That's coming up in the Muskoka region, Camp Mediba on May 5th to 7th. And so you can go sign up for that at apologiescanada.com forward slash leadership dash summit dash on on for ontario so go there and submit your application and we'll go from there these are some pretty exciting things coming up with that out of the way let's get started over the last few weeks we've gotten a number of emails from our listeners and supporters of our ministry uh, asking us to address the issue of universalism uh, specifically Christian universalism. And so we're going to be talking about that. So just to get us started, what Christian universalism is, it is actually a pretty old view. 
um, held by some early church fathers uh, and onwards, this idea that hell is actually temporary, that God is working through Christ to reconcile all things and all people to himself. So the idea is that there's a bit of a variety um, within Christian universalism too. Some views hold that only people will be, all people will be reconciled to God and the devil and his angels will not be. Some go so far as to say even the devil himself will ultimately be reconciled to himself. So this is, this view is not a necessarily a denial of hell, but a view that views hell as a temporary state of being where you go through some kind of a purgation, some kind of cleansing in a sense, a lot like the purgatory idea in Roman Catholicism. And then uh, you will come out on the end, eventually reformed and reconciled to God. So the key idea is that hell is temporary and everyone will be reconciled to God. So this issue was brought up lately in um, it struck me that in one of the emails, the listener went so far as to say, seems as if we're trying to hide something because we never talk about this. We never talk about universalism. So we thought, hey, let's talk about it. <laughs> I think that's such a good point. You know, sometimes it can feel that way, like we're hiding from issues. And the reality is because sometimes we are hiding from issues. And this is something that I've actually talked about more and more at church churches is Hey, let's make sure that we're, you know, that we're encouraging people to ask their questions and that we're actually engaging with the questions that that they're asking. And so I hope you listeners feel like you're appreciated because when you ask, we will talk about it uh, at Apologetics Canada. I hope uh, you feel that we, you know, take those things to heart and we're, we are not hiding uh, from those difficult uh, and challenging issues. And this is one of those difficult and, and challenging issues. Now, I think mm-hmm. the reason why sometimes it can feel like churches are hiding from it or peop- or just Christians in general are hiding from it is, is because, I, I don't know about you guys, but I get the sense that, you know, there's different kinds of people that come to this question. There are some people that are just coming to this question because they are deeply wrestling with it. And as I've done a number of speaking engagements over my life, those tend to be the kind of people that I that I encounter a lot, right? Going... Hey, my aunt Susie, you know, doesn't know Jesus. What's going to happen to her, right? And there, and so this question is full of of anxiety and fear and concern for a loved one. However, there's also these other kinds of people that are out there, and they are, I would call, heresy hunters. And this, I I think, is also part of the challenge with a question like this. Is like they're like, you know, it's it's almost like they're just trying to figure out are are you heretical or not, and. And and in that, it can often feel like there's not really a discussion that can take place. That being the case, I actually wanted to frame off this right off the get-go. If you're on this podcast today as a heresy hunter, I I just want to address that issue really quick here. Uh, I want you to know that Apologetics Canada is uh, is orthodox and that we hold to a traditional Christian view, including issues of uh, universalism. And I just want to read off a few verses here that I think give a view of the Orthodox Christian view on this. But And in giving that, I think it's important to appreciate that there's a discussion then that needs to take place in the midst of that, and that's what we're going to engage in today on today's podcast. So, for example, we read in places like Acts 4.12 that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. We hold that 
It is only through Jesus that we have salvation. And that is something that we have held to and we have talked a lot about uh, at Apologics Canada. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. However, there's more nuance to this question, of course. And that is, we see in 1 Timothy 2.4, that God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And then we read in places like Ezekiel 18, 23, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, I am not pleased when they turn from their ways. Rather, uh, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? We read in Job 34, 12, It is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. And lastly, uh, I just want to read Genesis 18.25. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Now, what I'm trying to frame here is there's this challenge that's happening. On the one hand, salvation is only found in Jesus. On the other hand, God wants all people to be saved. And then I think the biggest question that we often wrestle with when we get into universalism is, you know, if that's the case, you know, if salvation is only found in Jesus and God wants everybody saved, well, what's happening again to like my Aunt Sally? Or what's happening to that person? You know, we'll think of various different analogies like that person on that remote desert island or those people who existed before Jesus, uh, those who have never heard, in other words. And this then is where a lot of Christians will come and they will they will establish themselves on this idea, well, God is just and he's going to do right. And, and so, again, I just wanted to kind of, you know, bring the conclusion to the very forefront of this conversation and say, this, this is where the wrestling match is all taking place as we think through this and particularly as we approach this. Uh, from Apologize Canada. D- does that make sense, guys? Yeah, I think it does. And, and I think it, it is good to outline the fact that um, these ideas exist and that I think we can understand to a certain degree, um, you know, subjectively and emotionally, that there is a precedence for wanting everybody to be saved. I think all Christians should want everyone to be saved. Right. And I think um, I think we can hold uh, uh, two things can be true at the exact same time. We can desire for everyone to be saved, and we can hold to the orthodox, historical, biblical view that what we see outlined in Scripture and what we see of God's character is that in order for God to be holy, in order for God to be just, in order for God to exude these characteristics that we find revealed throughout the whole testimony of the sixty-six books of Scripture, that. God does not wink at sin, that there is a true penalty and punishment for sin, and we see that ultimately on the cross. And so uh, there are people who are not saved. And that, you know, um, this is a an issue that goes right back to the early church. Universalism has been a question and a topic that has been talked about and discussed going to the earliest days. You know, the the Gnostics and then even the Jewish sect of the Kabbalah, um, who were universalistic, uh, they were addressed by the early church writers in these types of ideas. And, uh, you know, there have been multiple versions of universalism, as, as Steve said. 
but a lot of these ideas are just um, ancient ones that have been addressed by it, the church universal throughout the 2000 years of its history. And um, we can recognize that there's a legitimate reason for that, even even if the 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 motivation for wanting that to be true, it conflicts with the methodology of what we actually see about the reality of salvation in Scripture. And I also want to say that um, one of the reasons that we don't talk about this a lot, especially in the Western churches, like Roman Catholics or you know Protestant evangelicals or whoever it might be. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think one of the reasons is that this idea of Christian universalism was actually anathematized. It was condemned at a church council in uh, Constantinople in the 6th century. And what tends to happen is when a council has that kind of an official thing coming out, it's people tend to take it as case closed. We don't need to talk about this. We've done the work already. And so people don't tend to talk about it. And so certainly Protestants, you know, coming out of sort of the Roman Catholic, you know, break, breaking away from that in a sense, right? Um, take inherit that traditionalist view on hell and people don't really tend to talk about that all that much. Um, so it's not necessarily that we're trying to hide it so much as, I mean, sometimes, yeah, we do want to to hide it. We don't want to deal with it. Um, but other times it's because we feel that it's already been discussed. I can appreciate that. But I think as well, like when we've done events over the years, Steve and Wes, like, and, and we'll have different Q&A and people will ask these questions. I've always gotten the feeling that it's almost like there's two things that are happening. One is there can be a genuine question, but again, there's the other where it's almost kind of sniffing out where's this person going to land and how are they wrestling with it? And again, it's back into that heresy hunting sort of thing. And, and, and maybe I, that, I think that that's an interesting point, though, with regards to a council having spoken on it. So now when you do talk about it, you know, you're constant, constantly having that wrestling going, okay, where is this person landing and are, are they, are they orthodox and landing in it and versus, you know, us wrestling through this question together? It, I, I can yeah. tell that, I don't know if I'm making total sense to you guys. I'm just, I'm just trying to get at the vibe I feel in a room whenever this question is asked of a speaker and everybody's kind of gripping their chair sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. And I think there are a lot of things that are assumed within sort of the average Christian's mindset. There are issues that uh, Christians are ill-prepared because we just assume them rather than really understand them. I think the doctrine of the Trinity is one of those where a lot of Christians believe it and hold to a historic Orthodox perception on it. But in terms of actually articulating the why and the how, and especially expounding it from scripture, they might be a little bit weak on that. So there's a, a little bit of a, uh, um, a fear and anxiety about really being pushed to defend that. They they hold to it and they believe it, but the actual articulation of, okay, well, why don't I believe everybody's going to be saved? Or how do I understand that three can be one? Or, or those types of things, I think, mm -hmm. especially in the Protestant communities. And you mentioned the church councils. I mean, one of the definitions of orthodoxy, right? Orthodoxy is just a, a compound word two Greek words, orthos meaning right, and doxa within its many meanings, meaning teaching. And so uh, there, there is a concept, you know, orthodoxy is ultimately uh, about what is true as it pertains to scripture, but there also is historical orthodoxy that 
is limited to the church councils. Um, so if the church council comes down on a particular issue, then you can be unorthodox without necessarily being heretical because heresy pertains to scripture and erring, particularly on the, the, the deity of Christ and issues surrounding the nature of God. Um, but orthodoxy, being unorthodox doesn't necessarily mean you're heretical, but I think actually this is one of those issues that it, I think you can be a universalist and not be a heretic, but I think it borders on and it really has some issues that uh, bleed into things that might actually lead you down to believing things that are actually heretical about God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's well put, Wes, and that's ultimately... Uh, what I what I'm getting at here, because once you start heading down that, I you know depending upon how you start teasing out universalism, uh, will absolutely uh, head down that that path. Because ultimately, what we're saying, and or what the scriptures are teaching and are quite clear on, again is it it is in Jesus and in Jesus alone by which you are saved. Mm-hmm. So then let's start getting into this, into the thick of it, really. Um, to be fair, like Christian universalists, they're not dumb, right? I mean, they they have a biblical case to make. They have a philosophical case to make. And uh, for somebody who has sort of kind of assumed the traditional views on hell and those kinds of things might really get caught off guard by it. And certainly as I've been studying more into this just lately, um, I have to say that there were certain misconceptions that I had that I, I think, okay, like this that's universalism is not quite what I thought it was. Um, but let let's get started. I, I think this discussion I found revolves a lot around a couple of things over certain words. Well what does everlasting mean? or like I should say the Greek word ionios, which we often translate as eternal, or everlasting, what does that mean? And also another word like Gehenna, hell, which we often translate as hell, what does that mean? And how does like Hades, Tartarus, like all of these things uh, work into that? Because uh, a universalist position would say Ionios doesn't necessarily mean everlasting or eternal like we think of it. It just means an indefinite long period. And the idea of Gehenna as well, it's it's a it's a hill, or oh, sorry, a valley on the south side of Jerusalem. So there's a lot of sort of back and forth over the meanings of the, these words. So let's just pick. Let's start with Gehenna. Can I pass this one off to you, Wes? Can we start there? Yeah, basically, uh, one of the issues is that there are a number of words that are used to describe the afterlife. Um, there is Gehenna, there is Sheol, which is the the Hebrew term for the place that the dead go to, or sometimes it's just translated as the grave because that's what it can mean, the place where the body goes, but also there's a place where your your spiritual self goes. Uh, That's often uh, translated in the New Testament as uh, Hades or Hades. And then uh, in 2 Peter 2, 4, it uses this word Tartarus, uh, which is found in that place only. The one that kind of is highlighted that uh, you mentioned, Steve, is um, Gehenna. And Gehenna is 
what we typically refer to when we refer to hell. So I think the biblical authors clearly make distinctions between the afterlife in these places. I don't think Sheol Hades are hell. Hell is the uh, the the future tense place that is the lake of fire mentioned in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, where it says that both death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And then this is referred to as the second death. And um, Gehenna is just the Hebrew phrase, which means the Valley of Hinnom. Now, if you go to the Old Testament, uh, it tells you that there were people like King Ahaz of Judah who sacrificed their sons to pagan gods. So it's believed that the burning place that Isaiah refers to in Isaiah 30, 33, is where the Assyrian army is to be destroyed and the rebellious go to perish. And so in the reign of Josiah, a call came from Jeremiah to destroy the shrines at this particular location. And it's where Josiah is said to have destroyed shrines to Molech to prevent the Israelites from practicing the practice of child sacrifice. But it's this valley outside of Israel. It's sometimes referred to, I don't know where this idea came from, that the Valley of Hinnom was a garbage dump. It's not, it's, that's not accurate, um, but it is a place where we can see that pagan child sacrifice was taking place. And so it's trying to invoke this image of this really terrible place where you would go out and literally sacrifice your children on altars. You'd scold them to death is how it was done. And so the Bible describes both heaven and hell as a place created by and belonging to God as much as this universe is made by the same God. And so when the biblical authors use this language, um, we have, you know, as I said, multiple distinctions. One of the problems is that the King James Bible translated them all as hell. That did lead to some confusion. But ultimately, there's this concept of there's a place where the dead go after they die, and that's what we refer to as Hades. It's kind of played off of in Jesus's parable of Lazarus and the rich man, that there are these there are these two components to Hades, and there's uh, you know a place of pain and suffering, which is an intermediate period before the judgment, and then there's Abraham's bosom. And I think we do see a shift at Jesus's resurrection where he goes and he rescues those who are in Abraham's bosom and takes them into the presence of God. Um, but that ultimately, I think what we can say from scripture is that hell is a future tense place. No one is in hell currently because hell is the lake of fire in the book of Revelation. But I, given that, I don't think it's inaccurate when we say to people, you know, you could end up in hell or you will go to hell because I, I think, you know, scripture is clear that that is the, the end yeah. result and location. But ultimately, the biblical authors may at times, they borrow language from other places to help mm -hmm. the reader understand what heaven and hell are about um, of much greater influence on the New Testament. There's a heavy dependence on the Old Testament, but to imply that the biblical teaching should be traced to say the, the religious milieu of the Greeks and Romans, because they also use terms like Hades and Tartarus, I think would actually um, miss what the New Testament authors are saying. So a universalist would push back on that, right? And mm -hmm. say the Gehenna, was referring to that valley south of south of Jerusalem. It, it is not referring to that future tense place like you're mentioning. Um, yeah. That this is a place again, just as this place 
uh, has been reformed in a sense, right? It's not. It's been restored. It, it, this is not a place where you sacrifice your children anymore. Mm-hmm. Just just like that, right? The idea of hell that we have, it's a temporary place where those who are impure are cleansed so that they can ultimately enter through the pearly gate, so to speak, through which right. no impure thing will ever enter. Um, but I understand that uh, uh, the, the Jewish rabbis in the Second Temple period actually took Gehenna to be an eternal place, like a, a kind of a future tense place where we will go to. And so they take Gehenna, which is a, is a physical valley that, that has like a physical location and history and all those kinds of things, but they're using that to to refer to this future tense place. And Jesus would have been very familiar with that. And so the traditionalist position is that if Jesus wanted to talk about Gehenna in a way that it's kind of a limited temporal kind of a thing, he would have to really go out of his way to talk about it. And so, the tra- again, the traditionalist position is when Jesus invokes Gehenna, in keeping with the rabbinic understanding at the time, it's talking about that uh, future uh, destiny of those who are damned. Well, and I think if you take the universalistic position on that interpretation of Gehenna, it makes what Jesus says about it very problematic when he says that Gehenna is the place that both body and soul are destroyed uh, in Matthew 10, 28. If they're destroyed, it's hard for them to be reformed, right? Um, Destruction and this language of second death, I think, has an aspect of finality to it. And, and in Mark 9, 43, Jesus describes Gehenna as one of unquenchable fire. So I think that if you're going to take that interpretation, you really have to wrestle with how Jesus describes that place and how it operates. Because I think it's very hard to use language like unquenchable and um, destroyed or annihilated is another way you could uh, um, be uh, interpret that, which is, I, I think, where, you know, the annihilationist position, which is an entirely different um, conversation, maybe for another podcast, uh, that's where they would draw on that language. But I, I think or it maybe is... Maybe you should just define annihilationist just real quick for people. Yeah, so there is a position, um, the traditionalist view, uh, what uh, that word that uh, Steve used, would be the idea that hell is eternal. Uh, so you, you go to eternal life, uh, with God, and you go to e- eternal suffering um, in hell. Eternal conscious torment. Yes, yes. Right? Eternal conscious torment is the, the typical language used. There is a view that's referred to as annihilationism, where typically uh, what I would say orthodox annihilationism is, is that unlike the Jehovah's Witnesses, which believe in annihilationism, where they would say that unbelievers just cease to exist uh, after death, uh, Christian annihilationism typically takes the form of there's a period of time where the individual, the reprobate, does suffer and then is consumed by their sin and then then they cease to exist. Uh, so there's an organization yeah. called Rethinking Hell, which is run by a guy named Chris Date. Um, and I, I think he, he has a, a very interesting and uh, academic perspective on that, which I, I think, uh, although I don't agree with, has more credibility than maybe some give it, uh, but that's basically the annihilationist position is that hell is not eternal. If we could just mention on that, I think how you interpret hell is a much different question, though, than universalism. I, I would argue that 
your interpretation of hell at you know with regards to annihilationism and and whatnot i'm i'm also not an annihilationist but but i can appreciate the argument uh mm-hmm. i really i really can but i to me there's a lot of question marks over that and so i i hold that one much more open when we're talking about universalism i see that as as being a, a different different thing altogether yeah uh depending yeah, upon how that universalism is being teased out because on the one hand and i appreciate your guys's conversation here about hell the the thing that i would guess is that you're getting at is you know you hear people like rob bell who wrote the book you know love wins and it's kind of this idea that eventually god's going to win everyone over and hell is going to be defeated sort of thing love's going to win everybody's going to come to heaven sort sort of idea now th- this kind of becomes more of like this you know there like there's a soft universalism i'd say and then there's a hard universalism in the sense that the soft universalism is really this idea that love's going to win, but it's Jesus that's going to win, and it's Jesus that is going to save, whereas more of this kind of harder universalism is kind of this idea, do all religions lead to God sort of sort of concept. And so then, it, you know, you hear the various analogies of mountain climbing or elephant groping or whatever— some people don't. If you don't, if you haven't <laughs> heard that groping. parable, people are like elephant groping. What on earth? Uh, just quickly, it's this idea. Well, you know, we're all climbing the same mountain, and we're just describing the mountain from our different perspectives, or we're all touching the same elephant. We're just describing it from you know our different vantage point. And then often you hear you know the parable of the three blind men touching an elephant, and and uh, you would say six blind men, six blind men, and the elephant. Okay. Well, I have heard sure I've are. heard this parable given a million Lots different, of different ways. Versions, yeah. And in my version, Wes, there's three blind men. Okay. <laughs> my version was four. <laughs> was it really, Steve? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the, you know, one, you know, and you're you're told, you know, one blind man's feeling the leg and he says, Oh, it feels like a tree trunk, and others feeling the ear says, Oh, it feels like a fan, and another's feeling its tail or, or nose and saying, Oh, it feels like a you know, rope. Yeah. And the idea is, oh, look, we're all talking about the same reality from a different perspective. So, so there, so it's just important that you're understanding that universalism can be approached from different perspectives. It can be approached from within a Christian perspective of, you know, Jesus is going to win sort of idea versus it can be approached from uh, more of a world religion perspective. Thus far, we've been really, you know, we're just, I think in this conversation, we're going to be focusing more on this idea of within the Christian tradition, how, to, how does this get teased out? Yeah. When we're when we're looking at this, yeah, pluralistic universalism, which would be kind of popular in um, a non-Christian context, that is described often by the the blind man and the elephant, um, is is I think ultimately has the same conclusion, but a, a different way of going about it. Where Christian universalism would incorporate the fact that they would say, you know, everybody's saved under Christ. Some people can just be saved and don't know it. To which I think we would say, you know, in the parable of the blind man and the elephant, while well, the elephant opens his mouth and tells us exactly what we need to know about what the elephant looks like in his character. And so that kind of cuts out the middleman. Well, that's what made Jesus so unique, by the way, that everybody who's hearing him goes, wow, this guy talks with authority. He doesn't talk like a blind person. He talks with one who has sight. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that is quite significant. With regards to this parable, because I brought it up, I should just, I should just mention that I actually think that this parable uh, is better evidence for the exclusivity 
of of Christ than it is for universalism. Uh, because and and I just want to bring this up because I've met different people who've been very persuaded by it that oh you know this 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 uh, parable you know just teaches that you know we're we're all we're all approaching the same thing. But the the problem is though, of course, all three or six Wes. Or four. Uh, or, or, or four, Steve, <laughs> are wrong. They're all wrong. They've all described reality incorrectly. And there, there's only one person that describes reality correctly, and that's the narrator that's telling you the story. And ultimately, the, the goal is to get the narrator's perspective. How do I see reality correctly? And ultimately, what we're saying is, is that that is found in Jesus. Jesus is the one who is not blind, he sees, and he's telling you the way that that it really is. And that becomes significant as well, because when you're talking about the blind, you know, groping for truth, and and I know you guys have studied world religions as well, what you see is what the reality that's being described is, is uh, diametrically opposed to one another. You've got some religions like Buddhism saying that God, you know, doesn't exist. You've got other religions like Islam saying God does exist. And yet, you know, they're all supposed to be describing the same reality. Well, the logic of non-contradiction tells us that that just can't be the case. You know, reality isn't that both God exists and doesn't exist, that God's both personal and impersonal. And, and this, this is where things start to obviously unravel if you start heading down that path. So we don't have time to head down that path. I wasn't planning on heading in that direction, guys. But really is within this, you know, this Christian um, doctrine, trying to understand how do we make sense of a good, you know, an all good, all loving God, and yet this reality of of hell as what's being described. And how then do we understand that tension then between God's desire that all would be saved, and yet? You know, there we're told of this this terrible place that people go if they don't place their trust in Jesus. And so there's a lot of people, you know, that come to our speaking engagements and will raise questions and say, this looks manifestly unfair. Bringing this back to the discussion over the words, um, let me let me get into it this way. I, I find that Christian universalism, the idea that hell is a temporary place where you, you know, where the reprobate are cleansed, so that ultimately every person is reconciled to God. Um, it, it's not easily dismissed in the sense that they still hold to hell, right? So um, I, I know a lot of Christians just want to bring up certain passages that talk about hell or judgment and things like that, and they think, oh, it, it's done, the case closed. It's like, well, no, not really, because uh, Christian universalists will be just as comfortable with that. Uh, in fact, some ways, uh, a Christian universalist uh, can really embrace the the terrifying nature of hell, because in the end, you are going to be reconciled to God, right? So there is some, some strength there, but here, a lot of the discussion revolves around, okay, is hell temporary or is hell eternal? Right, so the word ionios in Greek, which we translate as uh, everlasting or eternal, that's often brought into question because, of, for example, the the word ionios it, it has different meanings, right? Sometimes it is used for things that are not 
clearly not eternal. So, for example, Jonah um, 2.6, I think. Uh, I, I know Jonah is Old Testament, so it wasn't written in Greek. But the Greek translation of it uses the word Ionias here. Um, and Jonah 2.6 says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. The word forever there um, is olam in Hebrew, but I understand, if I, unless I'm mistaken, it's translated with ionios. But clearly, this wasn't forever, right? Because he was in the belly of the fish, what, three days and three nights kind of an idea. The question is, okay, when we see the word ionios, you know, like it with conjunction, in conjunction with things like, you know, uh, Gehenna or things like that. Is it is it temporary? Is it eternal? Let me throw that to you guys, and we'll wrestle with it for a bit. Well, and this is where uh, one of my beefs is when people make too much or too little of words. Um, and it, I mean, there are obvious caveats to this, but a lot of the time, the people who I know who know the most about the biblical languages talk about it the least. And the people who know about it the least talk about it the most and often make the most mistakes. And I think part of the problem is that there is a kernel of truth. As, as you said, Steve, the truth is that Ionios can mean a temporal position. You know, you mentioned the, the passage in Jonah, but one from the New Testament is Romans 16, 25, which says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for Ionios, and that's translated as long ages, past. Now that's obviously, you know, the secret of the gospel is not kept eternally because it's revealed in Jesus Christ, right? And this is where it's very important to understand that words mean what they mean within any context. I mean, another example of that would be, you know, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? But 1 John, same author, in chapter 2, verse 15, says that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So obviously the word world is being used in different contexts. Otherwise, the love of the father is not in the father when he loves the world to send the son, right? And so this is where we need to keep things in their context, how they are articulated, and let scripture interpret scripture very clearly. And I think when you do read passages that are referring to eternal life and eternal judgment, uh, John 6, 47, John 10, 28, um, you know, Romans 5, uh, 21. These are places that talk about eternality, especially in the ones that, like, like John 6, where it juxtaposes eternal life with, um, you know, uh, e e eternal, you know, perishing, that we need to take them within their own context. And mm -hmm. this is often where I think simple concordances or lexicons can really mislead people because knowing a little bit of Greek or a little bit of Hebrew can often be a dangerous thing because you know just enough to get yourself into trouble, but not enough to really actually articulate what's going on. And when you see a word, you look it up in Strong's Concordance, it says, you know, aeonios, eternal, and then it gives a list of semantic ranges of what you could translate that word as. Well, I mean, there's all sorts of words that could be translated as, if I say the word pig in isolation, you don't know whether I'm talking about me who ate too much for supper last night or, <laughs> you know, a swine that lives on a farm. That, that There's a semantic range within that word. And so the context is very, very important. And so it's not that Ionios 
only ever means eternal in every single situation. But when we see it used within the context of the afterlife being referred to, and especially when we talk about heaven and hell, I think we can say that it does mean eternal and everlasting, and that fits. So then let me throw like a a case study at you. So the sheep Uh-oh. and the goats, Matthew 25, uh, right, 46, says, and these, that is the, the goats, will go away into eternal punishment. The word there is kolasin ionian, so mm-hmm. eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, the a universalist, sorry, let's let's start with the traditionalist. Traditionalists will will say, uh, look at this uh, eternal punishment and eternal life, right? They are sort of mirror images. And so just as the righteous go into eternal life, which is, you know, like I think universalists would comfortably say that, yeah, this is everlasting and eternal. Um, so then traditionalists would say, but this is this seems to be a mirror image. And so the punishment that the, the goats are going into uh, will likely be uh, eternal. Now, uh, universalists will then cite something like Habakkuk 3.6. Uh, it says, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. And then this is where you see the word olam a couple times. The everlasting hills sank low. His, that's God's ways. His, uh, his were the everlasting ways. Again, the word is olam. So they say, hey, look, here is a case where the word olam is used twice, right? But olam clearly mean different things because the hills even though it is Olam or Ionios, uh, they sank low, right? It, it, it's not yeah. everlasting in that sense. Whereas uh, God's ways, his were the everlasting ways. This is eternal and everlasting. And so having those two put together doesn't necessarily mean that those that's a mirror image, right? There can be asymmetry. Well, and this is where reading the rest of the book would help. Remember that chapter and verse divisions are much later. Chapters come in the 13th century and uh, verses come in the 15th century. And so Mm -hmm. if we're reading a book and understanding it within its entirety, Matthew is a very bad place to go because in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus has already said that the gate to eternal life is small and that the way is narrow that leads to life and few are, are those who find it. And then he says in Matthew 22 that for many are called, but few are chosen. And so if we understand Jesus' words within the Gospel of Matthew, within their entirety, sure, you can pick and choose and make typological arguments and um, put words and phrases in isolation. But if we're really reading Jesus within the context of what Jesus says within the entirety of his preaching ministry, I think it's very hard, especially in a place like um, the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, because he says these types of things, that the gate is narrow, that, that few are chosen. Um, you know, in in uh, Luke 13, he says, and someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And Paul plays off of the the same kind of language when he talks about Isaiah's concern for Israel that though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved, that there are there are few, that that's limited, that we know that not everybody, you mentioned um, a couple of weeks ago when we did, um, you know, the, the once saved, only saved two-parter, Steve, that there are many who will say, you know, Lord, Lord, 
And what's Jesus' response? Away from me, workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And that's, there's a finality to that. And so I think, yes, you can make cases in isolation, but when we take people like Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew or Paul within his entirety, it's very hard to make that case as a whole. Yeah. And and here's another actually word that we don't talk about a whole lot, I think. I, I, I found that a lot of the discussion revolves around ionios, everlasting, eternal, or, you know, whatever. But, um, indefinite, uh, and then there's Gehenna and words around hell. But I look at, g- g- give me your feedback, guys, and see what you think. Like say in Matthew twenty five forty six, again, sheep and the goats. Um, the, the goats will go away into eternal punishment. The word for punishment is colossus in Greek. I, I don't, I don't know of an instance in the New Testament where that word is used with the connotation of reformation and restoration towards the end. What, what do we mean by eternal punishment? What is the nature of this punishment? And this um, parable of the sheep and the goats it comes after, as it comes in the context of a couple of other parables, which is the 10 virgins, right? You know the story. Uh, there are the wise virgins who are vigilant and they go into the wedding banquet and the foolish ones they're shut out and then there's the talents the parable of the talents where there is that that one servant who just buried the talent that he was given and didn't do anything with it and i find that this is interesting in matthew 25 verse 30 so this is just before this the parable of the sheep and the goats um the master is really angry with this servant and he he calls him and he tells the other servants and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. And so that word worthless kind of sticks out at me. It doesn't sound to me like restoration is in view here. So do you guys have any thoughts on that? Am I totally out to lunch? The the idea of punishment. And we could also say judgment, right? Like Hebrews 9, 27 and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, the word there is crisis. What does crisis mean? mean right? Uh, I, I believe this is a legal word. Um, anyway, like I, I'm throwing out too many words here. Maybe I'm the guy who knows too little about biblical languages that are using too many words, but these things did stick out at me. The reason I'm bringing up is because a Christian universalist says, again, hell is a temporary place. The purpose of hell is reconciliation, reformation, and the cleansing of impurities, so on and so forth, right? So that when you come out on the other end, you know, you, you are pure and you are reconciled to God and now you can enter through the pearly gates, so to speak. I just, when I see the words colossus, punishment, or crisis, judgment, like these words don't seem to have the connotation of restoration, right? This has to do with with punishment and judgment, where there is a sentence that's uh, uh, brought out, and there's so if we are saying still these things imply some kind of restoration, it seems to me like we're reading into the text, reading into the words, the meanings that are not there. Um, that, that's why I'm bringing up Colossus and Chris's and these words. So restoration in the sense that with regards to the punishment, is the is the punishment something that can be fulfilled and people be restored or brought to heaven, if you will? Or is it something where they are 
being punished and it's an ongoing thing. Is that is that what you're getting at? Partly, yeah. My main concern is, are we reading restoration into these words from a Christian universalist perspective? Well, let me add a little bit more to this, and then we'll let Wesley solve it all. Uh, (laughs) No problem. That's why I'm here. That's why you guys bring me on the podcast. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to Will Everyone Be Saved? Part 1. Make sure to tune in next week as Andy, Steve, and Wes get back into Part 2. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada, so make sure to like and subscribe on all of your favorite streaming platforms. Interact with us on social media. We love to hear from you. If you have any questions about this podcast, feel free to reach out to us at info at apologeticscanada.com. We'd be happy to hear from you. But you know the drill. Till next time, love God, love people. Bye for now.